Hello and welcome to Kazutona Monologue. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be covering The Towers Follows Chapter 4, and I am once again joined by Jesse Rapier. Hello! Hello again! I'm back, a glutton for punishment. <laughs> uh, I was actually really surprised when you chose this chapter of all chapters. Mm, I had a feeling it would be. <laughs> yeah, come on, because there was, you know, there, there was some uh, big stuff happening, uh, especially in Chapter 2, and there's some big stuff coming up. This chapter is just pure unadulterated sadism on Bonhart's part. Uh, so, why this chapter? Well, one could argue it's sadism on the author's part. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny, because normally, so when I started this book, I told myself I wouldn't do these kind of chapters, you know, all the Siri and the Guardian Empire stories. Uh, I feared I would find them too heavy to articulate further, because we've had that kind of trouble in the past. But when I got to this chapter, I was just very impressed by both the faming devices used here and our further descent into, shall we say, the criminal underbelly of this world. You see the real ugly and fractured side of the Empire, with multiple characters as a point of view tour guides. Most sadly, poor Siri, who's just been <laughs> dragged even further than I thought possible. <laughs> yeah, um... I, I remember vis viscerally reading this for the first time uh, because, you know, Siri is like, you know, you don't want anything bad to happen to her. And just bad stuff just keeps happening. And you're just like, oof. And you just roll with it after a while. <laughs> and, and it's just like, it's... I, I call this book the Siri book. Mainly because <laughs> it, it puts Siri through the ringer. Um, and so, like, it is, as you say, pure unadulterated uh, sadism on behalf of Andre. I, uh, I, I don't think that, um, it's pure sadism, because we are taking a character who is a very, very particular kind of character, and breaking her down bit by bit. And oftentimes, when you have... Uh, a character who has been broken in some way, they try to rationalize things. Um, in Sirius' case, she made a life with the rats. It was a toxic, horrible life. It was a house of cards. Inevitably, someone was going to come around and knock it down. But she didn't want to view it that way because, you know, this was her safety blanket. Mm. Much like Geralt has his own. And now that it's been beheaded... And knocked down. Mm -hmm. um, she has no safety blanket anymore. The house of cards has fallen. And so now she's having to recontinue where she was just at with the breaking. And she delayed the rest of the breaking by just sort of hiding. Hiding within her own little bubble. Mm -hmm. But someone came around with a little pinprick and pricked the bubble. And now she has to deal with everything. She was like, Molly hacked the bubble. <laughs> yeah. Um... The, took a saw to it, in fact. Um, gotta preserve it. You don't want to ruin the goods. So, to me, this is all about getting her to where she needs to be and, and sort of building her up as a character. Uh, it reminds me a whole lot of Vindis' run on Daredevil has a similar structure. Um, not as graphic as this, because it you know, it's a Marvel property, we can't go that far. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Matt is in a downward spiral of depression, and he finds a cover blanket to be in. And he remains there for a good chunk of the run until someone kicks it down. 
and then he has to properly process this stuff. So um, I, I think in a way, in a weird, twisted way, Sapkowski is in, inherently helping Siri because she hasn't processed what happened. She merely covered it up. He's retreating behind the mask of Falka. Yep. And now that someone's kicked that down, she has to process what it is and what happened. Uh, just like when Matt's identity got out of the papers in Brian Michael, but this is run on Daredevil. Matt has to deal with this. He can't just deny it anymore. I mean, it happens to Matt every five years, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, uh, I suppose so. I, I mean, relatively. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what is your take on Bonhart as a character? Uh, we mm. haven't talked. We haven't talked about him at all uh, because you know he didn't appear in any of the chapters you were on previously. He was introduced mm-hmm. at the tail end of last book, um, and he's become a major player in this book. So, what's your take on the sadistic bounty hunter? Well, before we get into him, I just want to point out I find it quite funny how you refer to the rats as a safety blanket because in my notes I call them a safety net. <laughs> uh, so it's it's cool we've both reached the same idea, just had different terms for it. I thought yep. that was funny. Um, but Leo, blimey. Uh, <laughs> just when you thought you can have enough, you know, bastard bounty hunters in this world, <laughs> this guy comes along. Mm-hmm. I got a real Sam Elliott vibe whenever I think about this guy. Just like Sam Elliott and all that south and grittiness just cranked up to 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, this is us seen more of the ugly side of this world further from the perspective of the witcher who you know usually just come to towns and castles and defeat all the monsters uh we're seeing the real monsters of this world the humans the you know the twats and murderers who keep slaughter all these people for the money that's such an interesting you know massive shift shift from where we started with this series mm-hmm. uh and like you like you pointed out when we were talking in the past he's not a pure psycho he's very methodical Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't do it just for the sake of doing it, but there's still that sadistic edge to it. You know, he's treating Siri like a dog. Uh, he's chopping off the head right in front of her. So he's a real piece of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm interested to see how far they're willing to go for the Netflix version. Uh, which <laughs> Does that show have a 12 or 15 rating again? Um, it's, it, it's, um, obviously I, I, I don't, uh, being not living in the UK, I don't know what the, the rating is on the, the UK side. It's, uh, it, it's a, um, it's a rating for MA, which means mature adults. So it's the same rating as Game of Thrones and stuff like that. Okay. So yeah, hopefully they're willing to push it, push the envelope just a little mm-hmm. bit, like maybe not too far, but just enough to really let, you know, that get the audience to sweep over them, you know, the, the pure visceral horror of it all. Mm. I view Bonhart as a sick, twisted version of Geralt. Mm, that's neat. He is a uh, a bounty hunter of sorts. He hunts monsters. Whether the monsters are real monsters or not is anybody's guess, but he does it for the money. Mm-hmm. And he uh, got a job, um, and uh, Decided to go against the job and claim Siri. Sound familiar? Um, and uh, and he treats Siri with the utmost disdain. Um, in the complete opposite of Geralt, who was a very calming person. You know, he was he still yeah had his rough edges. He wasn't a 
you know, he, he's not a well-trained dad because he's never been a dad before. But, like, he still cared. And he was still trying to be as good as he could be as the unexperienced dad that he was. Um, Bonhart actively challenges her. Like that, that, there's that bit where they're, they're, they're drinking at a stream and there's a crossbow within her arm's reach. And she realizes he placed it there. That it was intentional. That he wants her to go for the crossbow. He wants to see what she can do. Uh, and it's all about uh, testing her, figuring out where her lines are. Um, and that is that all that different from the glimpses we saw of Geralt's training her as a witcher. And how uh, Bonhart effectively... Whereas with Geralt, he was very protective of her. You know, in their very first scene together, he you know he gives her uh, you know a piggyback ride. In this, the very first scene that Bonhart shares with Siri that isn't battle is stripping her and taking her of all of her possessions. Um, and that seems uh, you know pretty much the exact opposite. Mm. Uh, so, like I said, it, it's it's the it's the shadow of Geralt, you know, the 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 dark Geralt. I think is what I would call Bonhart. Mm. Um, you know, in many ways, he resembles Geralt. So, like the both like opposite spectrums of being a stepdad. Yes. Uh, yeah, you make a very good point there. I hadn't thought of it like that. Would you would this connect to what you were saying in the past about uh, Vigilforts being a dark mirror of Geralt? Like the both different aspects of him. Yeah, yes and no. Vilgefortz is, um, you know, and the dark aspect of Geralt from a certain point of view. But even Geralt says you're you're stretching it a little. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, with with Bonhart, Bonhart is what people think witchers are. Oh, that's good. They are killing machines who have no remorse and are only there for money. That's all they are. We know that it's not true, but mm. that is the mythological version of a witcher. Whereas Vilgefortz is it's the background, it's the history that's similar, but even then, you know, it, it's stretching it a little and, you know, Gal directly tells him that, that, you know, you're, you're pushing it a bit too far here. Just because yeah. we both, just because we both had interactions with sorceresses and, uh, uh, you know, may, may have, uh, you know, had problems when we were children, that doesn't, that doesn't make us the same. That's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we said in class, a fun play on the whole, we are the same, you and I, to be over from all those villains. Yep. With Bonhart, they haven't met. Bonhart and Geralt haven't met face to face. But looking at it, look at Geralt's introduction in the very first short story. Then look at Bonhart's introduction. They're pretty similar. Yeah. They are very gruff men who are quick to violence who are there for the money and have no remorse. And, of course, we know Geralt does, but in the perception of a witcher, that Bonhart not being a witcher ironically encapsulates what everybody thinks a witcher is. There, there's some more stuff I can get into Bonhart, but we haven't gotten there yet. I don't want to do spoilers. Okay, excellent. Uh, we do know that he knows of Caramorin. Um, mm -hmm. because of the arena stuff, uh, in the entire thing, he was testing Siri, uh, to, to see what she would do. 
Um, and what is your entire feeling on the uh, the last bit of this chapter, which is the the arena? Yeah, so the Roman style gladiator, it's a very nice touch. Uh, it's like once again drawn upon real world barbarism in our world. It feels it makes this world feel more alive and corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just that final nail in the coffin of just series descent, you know, from princess to gladiator. It's kind of your typical uh, fall of the hero, hero's journey, I guess you could say. Yeah. Gladiator, of course, Russell Crowe, that's very much that kind <laughs> of line of line of thinking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these things are well told because they're still relevant, because they still work. Mm-hmm. There's something very cathartic about these characters starting off in such a high royal place, ending up here, and as you, were men- as you mentioned earlier, giving them that character growth, that push to take control of things. Mm-hmm. To me, the arena uh, is one of the one of the bits I remember very, uh, very vividly from this chapter, because it's not about the fight, it's all about the way she fights. Um, it's instinct over anything else. She has become a creature of instinct. Uh, that's all she does anymore. Um, and now that she's been broken out of her little comfort blanket, her safety net, if you will, she wants to not be like that anymore. If you remember, uh, last book, I believe it's mentioned that, uh, that people are noticing that she, out of all the band of rats, enjoys killing the most. Mm. She has become sadistic and hedonistic and just horrible. And now that Bonhart has, you know, kicked that house down. Um, she's in this arena where she's being forced to kill people and she doesn't want to. But her instincts are that of a killer. And so she kills. Um, and it's about Bonhart testing her to see, you know, to basically prove that she was trained as a witcher. He figured that out, but he wanted confirmation. Uh, but also to prove to her that uh, you are an animal. You are pure instinct. That's all you have been uh, been doing since you joined the rats, effectively. You, you were once this great thing, and now you are nothing more than a survivor. And a survivor is built on instinct and, uh, and, and only instinct. Uh, and so he's basically, in a roundabout way, proving to her that she is lost that's what always sticks with me in the in the arena fight is just that siri has fallen so far uh that she doesn't even resemble the young girl we met in the sword of destiny uh and in that's both tragic and also a bit ironic if you remember in blood of elves she has this entire spiel when she's learning how to fight uh, that she wants to get a sword and she's going to take revenge on the Black Knight and, and take all these guys out that have wronged her and her country. And Geralt snaps and goes, no, you do not raise this sword for any other reason than to protect. If you go out killing, you will lose yourself in that bloodlust. Guess what's happened? That's very good, very good foreshadowing. Yeah, so like, it, it is just the pure melancholy of what has happened to her I think is encapsulated in that scene very very well and then of course we got the uh, you know uh, Sikowski taking a mech out of like rich people and criminals and it's mm. it's hilarious because they're all crazy and uh, uh, 
hedonistic and enjoy the bloodlust and the and the uh and the carnage and um they're all getting high too uh on fantasy cocaine mm. uh fistech you know it's just the house of horrors that this is the world that siri has been skirting around for the past book and now she's fully in it and you know she pretended with the rats to be happy and fun and um and of course on that that was internally on the outside she was killing raping pillaging you know not good things mm-hmm. uh but in internally she was being happy the freedom uh you know a victim who who wants freedom who finds that freedom is just only another cage and so the arena encapsulates this is what you are now and that's why i remember very well in, in that aspect because i just remember going this isn't my little girl anymore she isn't the uh, the the innocent girl who thought that she was destined for something great who met uh, who met uh Geralt in a magical forest you know yeah. how far how far we have come and how low she has fallen and it just kind of hurts yeah what i found very striking was the right at the ending of the scene where she has the sword uh she sees the unicorn and as you mentioned mm. in the past it you know the unicorn reminds her of death of the little horse she met mm-hmm. and she's faced with that choice of should she free herself from this hellhole she's in mm-hmm. and the fact that she didn't and that when she's talking about this later she thinks she made the wrong choice that she was weak uh that really stuck out to me that was really upsetting but understandable take on not taking that choice mm-hmm uh, if you remember, Little Horse actually asked her to kill it mm. um, before she ended up caring for it, and then, uh, and then of course, you know, the unicorns helped her out uh, because they have she helped out one of uh, their kind. Uh, but uh, like Little Horse was starving, he was miserable, he was wounded in the middle of the desert. It wanted to die. And so she's reminded of that. And she has, the thing is, is that she has no one. Like, she has lost everyone. You know, Yennefer and Geralt are off in another land. As far as she knows, that they've uh, abandoned her. There's no way they can find her. Uh, she has lost everything. Her entire country's in flames. Her grandmother dead. Her mother and father long dead. "Quote unquote." <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, her uh, her "quote unquote" love uh, murdered right in front of her eyes, along with all her "quote unquote" friends. Mm. Um, and just she has lost everything. There is nothing left for her. And so, in the one time that she begged for survival, um, it's when she tapped into fire magic and got overwhelmed uh, by the spirit of the real Falca. And so she has given up. Her instincts, she's a creature of instinct now, says, I want to live. And what happens when your brain says, I want to die, but your instincts say, I want to live? She's just a mess. Even in the future, when she's talking to Visigoda, because this is all, you know, past tense, mm. um, she's all she's talking about this stuff to him. She's still a mess. 
She hasn't worked it out yet. And this is in the vague future. It, it's a Siri who is just completely lost. And um, the, the I call Time of Contempt, uh, the ending few chapters there with um, with Korrath and the introduction of the rats is the breaking of Siri. You broke her into a million pieces. She then, over the course of Baptism Fire, uh, rebuilt herself. But not wholly. Piece by piece, got a little bit together, and then it shattered all over again. Um, and, and so now, throughout the course of this book, we're going to have to see her rebuild again. And maybe when she rebuilds herself, she won't look the same at the end of the day as she once did. And that is both sad and at times also happy because of things that are to come, but also very, very sad. What has been your take on, you know, I, I brought up Visigoda, on the many different framing devices of this book? This book has a lot of them. Yes, and in this chapter alone, we're bouncing all over the place. Uh, yep. But it's very nicely handled, especially this chapter. I like how the first scene with the judge and the PSI uh, person, Scaleborn, you know, just pure dialogue. It felt very theatrical. Mm. That kind of stuff draws me in. And it was a nice way to difference, uh, to tell a difference between that time period, you know, when she's recounting events, when we're going to series point of view and all that. So mm -hmm. that was a nice way to, to handle it. Uh, and he didn't have to do that. He could have done a more straightforward way. But uh, I like it. It adds a very extra flair to it all. Brings this world more to life. This book, I think, is really the culmination of his playing with the, the framing devices. Um, he, he still has a framing device in the next book, but it, it's handled slightly different. Here, we got Dandelion's book, we got the trial of Stefan Skelen, we got uh, Siri recounting events of Visigoda, as well as sometimes framing devices within framing devices as the uh, trial transitions to uh, Johanna talking about their meeting with Esterhazy, to which point she probes his mind and gets the vision of Esterhazy meeting with Bonhart and Siri. So you have a framing device within a framing device within a framing device. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Watchmen. Yes, it is experimental and very much in tone with what the series is trying to do, which is we are all stories. Mm. And stories can be changed. Stories are written in from inherent bias from the person writing it. And as such, things can be changed, diluted, people have different experiences. This is furthering that commentary um, of the good facts versus real facts, is what I call it, the line for Babylon 5, that, uh, you know, it, it's about what is, what is truth and what is what someone says is the truth are not always the same. Uh, they line up in areas, but not always. And how we, we glorify things and we change the way things mean to the point that who's to know whether this was really the case or not. We know from last book uh, that there is uh, there was a young storyteller talking about uh, too, too much kids to about the story of the Witcher and the Rich Ress. So the story of Geralt and Ciri. But mm. who's to say how much of what he says is the real one? What we are experiencing. Who's to say what we are experiencing is as viscerally um, the same as it is from someone else's perspective. The, the arena from Bonhart's perspective is very different from Ciri's perspective of the arena. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple choice. Mm-hmm. And so I enjoy it, but I know it throws some people. There's also the inherent problem of, and I don't really consider it a problem because it doesn't really bother me, but one of the framing devices is the trial of Stefan Skillen, who has been a um, been a villain that was introduced in Time of Contempt and has continued on uh, being the main Siri bad guy um, <laughs> um, sort of uh, for a while. But we know that he's going to get caught and put on trial for treason. So, you know, some people, I don't really have this problem. Some people have this problem of suspension of disbelief that you are that this character is not going to die because we know that in the future this happens to them. I don't have a problem with that. I It's never bothered me ever in any fiction in which it's dealt with. So what are your thoughts on that kind of thing? I've seen stories like that in the past that take that, that concept of you're seeing the future, but then twisting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite TV show, Bojack Horseman, did a really good episode on it. Uh, any of the listeners who've watched that show, you you know what I mean. You know how heartbreaking that reveal was. And so that kind of stuff is interesting when done well. But I can understand that's not for everyone. I think if I read this particular chapter, well, this whole book when I was younger, I think the shifting perspectives would probably confuse me. So I can understand if it's not for everyone. But like I said, I think this really gives a strong visual identity uh, or prose identity, shall we say, more, more fittingly. <laughs> yeah. And I find them such a minor character, this, you know, Siri villain, like, you know, <laughs> they're not the villain anymore, not after bloody Bonhart. So yeah. I suppose it's not too major, this kind of a peek into the future. I, I mean, yeah, uh, certainly. Um, I, I just think that, I, I don't know, like, I've come across that criticism quite often. Because uh, ironically, a lot of fiction I, I, I like um, actually does this sort of thing. A little pomp to the future see some stuff and like, oh, this quote-unquote, this this now has no stakes. I don't really agree with that. Mm. And so I was interested to see what your take on it. Obviously, it doesn't really bother you because Stefan Sklin is a minor character. I mean, he he's a villain and he's a reoccurring baddie, but like he isn't like the, the, the face of the bad. No, right now that's Bonhart. Mainly it's because from, uh, th- there's a TV show I really like basically reveals that one of the characters will live until they're uh, over 90 years old. In one of the later seasons, they put her in a sequence in which she could very well die. It's emotional, it's tense, but I've seen criticism. We know she's going to live to 90, so there's no stakes in this. We know she's going to survive. To me, that's not really what that scene's about. That scene is about the emotionality of mm-hmm. it and coming to terms with one's own death and how that will affect her life going forwards for uh for some people it just throws them off because there's no stakes that kind of thing mm-hmm. so i was wondering if that was affecting you obviously it's not because he's a minor character but if it was a major character how would that affect you it'd probably be a big reveal yeah um i think this whole approach one way to look at it is the iconic alfred hitchcock idea of there's a bomb under the table yep. which i'm sure you're familiar with uh where if the audience knows what the character doesn't, you know, aka if there's a bomb under a table or that a character will die in the future, that gives the audience tension and knowledge the, the characters don't have. Mm-hmm. So I think giving the audience that kind of time frame of when something's going to happen isn't inherently uh, ruining, you know, the idea of what's going to happen to the future. I think it can raise stakes. It can raise the question of this happens. So 
we've seen C, we're at A, how do we get to B, what's going to happen? So I think that approach, it can be modeled under the wrong hands, but I think here, right now, I think it's been handled quite nicely. You mentioned you really like the the trial um, with Johanna and the way it's theatrical all dialogue. Yeah, I, just, I like how the judge is just like yeah. shooting down all this florid <laughs> shit, like, please, we don't want any architectural details. <laughs> I, can, I think that could be quite a bit of dark humor if done well in the show yeah he's done like all dialogue passages before um the the training of siri matter of fact uh when she's on the pendulum is nothing but dialogue uh if we go back to it stuff like that um i know that some people um people I, that i don't fully agree with say that his dialogue is quote-unquote awful i disagree a lot of the time because i think his dialogue is often nice and poetic and at times very very true to the way a lot of people talk around me and the way i talk so obviously you've enjoyed that but on a more uh technical level what is your take on his dialogue writing and the way he will do entire dialogue passages discussed in his past and i think it's adds nice style to it. Like we mm. we get to reveal at the same time a character does. Uh, it's like with some audio stories, like, you know, you've been getting into Big Finish recently and there's some stories that give you great plot twists because you don't see it visually. It really takes advantage of that medium. Yep. Uh, so I think when it's done here, it kind of draws you into the characters a bit more, I'd say. Yeah, like it, it, his writing style, you know, th this ties into with the framing devices is not for everyone. It's 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 very experimental. It's very much not doing your traditional book. Um, and then when it is doing your traditional book, he does it in a way in which it inherently is funny. For instance, all of the last chapter is Dandelion's book mixed in with uh, other small stuff that hasn't related to uh, Dandelion. And the whenever we go to something that isn't Dandelion... It is explained that Dandelion fell asleep <laughs> and that he stopped writing because Dandelion's writing this book, you see. Mm -hmm. There's inherent playfulness he's having that I don't know if people really appreciate because they go for traditional fantasy story. And it's asking the reader to take on a lot more legwork than a lot of stories often mm -hmm. will. The framing devices, it confuses a lot of people. It never really confused me because, you know, framing devices are fun to me. But to uh, to the uninitiated, just look up the Tower of the Swallows in Google, look for a review. A large majority of the reviews will talk about it's confusing, there's too many timelines, what framing device is what, something like that. It He is asking you as the reader to put in as much effort as he is writing it uh, to enjoy the story. And I think that is interesting. It's very Grant Morrison. Very, very Grant Morrison in a way. Into the Uninitiated, Grant Morrison is a well-known well comic book writer who is known for batshit crazy experimental storytelling. <laughs> Just halfway through an, an issue, they have Captain Adam turn to you, the reader, and tell you that you have the ability to time travel because you can flip pages, just to give an example. What he's asking you, some people don't want to put in. And so it can be quite confusing. And it certainly makes a hell of a job to adapt it. Uh, I, I know I've talked about to you about how I would adapt the series mm -hmm. in comparison to the Netflix show. But I've always figured that Tower of Swallows would be one of the hardest books to adapt. Because it is story within a story within a story. And so it is 
mind-boggling how one would adapt it. And I'm not watching the Netflix show anymore. I hope they don't even get here. I hope they get cancelled before then. Uh, but, you know, if they do, I wonder how much they're gonna do. <laughs> um, because, you know, the writing level of their episodes versus these books are very different. I don't know about you, but that, that's the way I feel about things. <laughs> yeah, very fair, very good point. Like I said in the past, I don't blame the writers. I do think they've been given quite a hefty challenge to adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, some choices they made, we both, you know, torn apart to shreds. But I, don't, <laughs> I can't blame them entirely. Uh, so yeah. I'll give the show one more season, you know, one more chance to grab hold of the potential it has. But if that doesn't impress, then I'll, I'll be like you. I'll just gotta kind of drop it. I don't know about you, especially in last chapter, as well as this chapter, I've been getting a very strong Western vibe from a lot of things. See that? Yeah, the way Dandelion and Geralt cross the river in the last chapter is very reminiscent of the way Blondie and Tuco um, you know, cross the river and go the bad and the ugly, just without blowing up the bridge. But, you know, very similar style. They're, 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 they're trying to play to a, a certain angle to get across. Um, and, and the way that they have to subterfuge their way. And then this chapter, you directly have the, 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 the man with no name, quote-unquote, who comes in, wrecks their life, uh, walks in the tavern, requests a drink, and then a bunch of people on horseback come and confront him, and he goes out and confronts them, and is, like, not at all fretted by what's going on, and is in his pajamas, by the way. <laughs> um, that felt very Western. And, and so, like, there's just this sense that, that, that's going through my head, is that this is a large part of the Bonhart stuff is Western pastiches. Um, I don't know if that was intentional, hope it is but i don't know about you i what's your take on that well it's funny you mentioned that because i did uh, i can imagine sam elliott's kind of yeah. type character for bon hart just that grim bounty hunter so it's funny i kind of saw that connection with him and you've made better points than i have about how the whole story's kind of got that vibe going on mm -hmm. i like to think it's intentional there's something in there i believe yeah, like, there's a lot of it that I think is intentional. Um, once again, you know, very few interviews of him existed in English, so I can't really get a, the feel for if this was intentional or not. There's some stuff we know that is directly intentional, like the, he directly references a Polish poem at one point, or uh, there's a Polish play that he does uh, that, that that's jokingly referred to in one of the previous books that are, like, very intentional, very culturally relevant jokes. But for the Western pastiche, I'm not sure, but I hope it is, because it feels mm. so distinctly. Like, Deadwood doesn't have a whole lot of gunfights, but it is one of my favorite Westerns. But someone going out in their pajamas to confront a bunch of horseback riders? Al Swearingen does that in Deadwood. And Al Swearingen, much like Bonehart, never pulls a weapon. It's all about intimidation through the way he his power is seen. I just see that scene in my head, and I'm like, yep. Okay. Um, and, and so it was like, welcome to fucking Deadwood. I love that show to death. Love it, love it, love it. But anyway, it just feels very Western to me. Um, but I also have a Western obsession. I really like Westerns. You pointed out when we first uh, came to do Witcher stuff together, 
I believe mm-hmm. it was Grain of Truth, that when we talked about like the Witchers as a concept, you made mention that it felt very cowboyish. You know, the the man with no name who comes mm-hmm. in and does does good and then leaves, gets paid, done. And I I, I liked it to the the Lone Road Inn, the 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 samurai with no master. Mm-hmm. I think that would be interesting if he was intentionally, you know, playing into that, especially if, as I said. Bonhart is the perception of what a witcher is, the dark mirror of Geralt without the heart, then uh, then that fits in very well with your reading that uh, a witcher is fantasy cowboy. Yeah, that's very brilliant. Speaking of the first episode that we did, I checked today, that was in November, so we've been doing this for nearly a year now, uh, and it's lovely that every time I still discover a new layer. So yeah, it's great stuff. That and I spend way too long thinking about fictional works, so you know I could be reading way too much into this. That, that's just my view on on, on the the stylistic uh, tone of the Bonhart sections, it, especially with like, have you ever read or uh, watched any version of True Grit? Say not. No, I'm vaguely aware of it. Mainly the hmm. 2010s reboot. I think it was the remake. Yeah, that's far closer to the book than the original. Yeah. But yeah, I'm a fan, not super familiar. Alright, um, the, the, the basic premise is that uh, a young girl hires a bounty hunter to take on the killer of her father and journeys with him. Uh, he is reluctant to take her on. And so there's times when he treats her like a piece of shit. Uh, because he's trying to get her to go away. Mainly because he's trying to protect her. Um, you know... When you understand Rooster Cogburn, you understand who he is. You know, he's not a nice man, but he has a heart. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there. The scene where she's tied up on the horse is very reminiscent of a, of a scene where um, he basically gets really pissed off at Maddie and spanks her with a whip. Um, and so I'm like, I'm not sure if that's like intentional or whatnot, because True Grit is pretty popular. But like, that's what was going through my head. So like, you know, potentials. I think I think it's a fun read if it's true. I don't really have any other questions. So, do you have any for me? Uh, I have the one. So mm-hmm. we've talked about how Bonhart is treating her like you know the captive she is. You know the dog stripping her naked, leading her by the lead. But one thing that I found interesting was that he did a pit stop to go to the blacksmith and gift her her very own sword. Mm-hmm. And I found that an interesting detail that despite all this, he'd give something personal like it's you know it's not a great gift you know to lead into the awful gladiator lifestyle but the fact that he got one specifically for her instead of just picking up any random scrap by that was a interesting detail to me especially when you when you told me earlier that uh the sword is very symbolic in that you know it's named after a swallow yep so i wondered if you had any particular reading on that and why he gave her this kind of macabre gift he wanted to test if she was a witcher. Witchers, um, believe it was uh, the Zoltan Zoltan's introduction. I think it was last book. Geralt gives exact measurements of his sword, mm-hmm. um, and uh, witchers are very particular because of the way they fight. They fight like dancers. They are pirouetting. They are, uh, you know, they they are dodging. They are, they are very fluid movers. Um, compared to the traditional swordsman, which is a big part of the arena fight, is that no one can touch her. That she's uh, always, you know, two, three steps ahead. Uh, because that's the way your witcher fights. And so, with a sword, uh, a sword for someone of that that fighting style, they would need something that is 
perfectly balanced, so it won't throw them away. As it is, one of the swords he asked for was uh, was a little too heavy. If mm-hmm. you remember, when was, you know, she she she'd be moving like a snail, you know, in a fight. You know, this isn't worth it. Him gifting her the sword is a just to test her, in my view, anyway. Uh, that it is all about. You're a witcher. I know what you're. Tra- you were trained at. If you were trained in this style, you would know how to use this to your advantage. Because Geralt has complained in the past when he's picked up random swords, how it doesn't feel right. Um, and so that's my view on it. In now, it, it's also worth noting that Zeriel, the uh, the sword that she gets, technically wasn't requested by Bonhart. It was a. It was something made by Estrahazi. Um, and he had it on stock, and Bonhart learned of it, and, uh, and gave it to her. If you remember, they go through a bunch of swords before mm-hmm. they get to it. And then, the, once again, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, to, uh, there, there's a scene in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, if you've ever watched it. I don't know if you have. Long time ago. Yeah, there's a scene where Tuco, one of our main characters, the Ugly in the title, um, he goes and he makes his own custom gun. And he subjects the poor gunsmith to lots and lots of mental torture to make him his gun. And he's very particular what kind of gun he wants and the sound he wants. Uh, there's that scene where he pulls the gunsmith closer to him. He's like, you hear that click? And he starts spinning the barrel and he's like, I like the click. That that, that scene entirely is reminiscing me of like that scene. You know, Estrahazi gave her the sword with no payment. Simply because he figured it out. Why? Because Bonhart has been testing her, and that's what this entire thing was about. And so he has this sword that supposedly is maybe special. You know, it, it, it has it has the name of something. It, it belongs to, uh, you know, a inherent part of the Ithlian's prophecy, the the destruction and the hope for the world. The seed that is sown uh, will, you know, ignite the world in flames, and then the white frost and the white flame and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. But it's also worth noting that in the first chapter of this book, we open with an extract. The extract is Siri, uh, in a fairy tale type way, referred to as the witcheress, goes to a fortune teller and asks for three things. A sword to kill evil, a horse to ride upon, and the ability to be free. She has two of the three. Mm-hmm. Nice sense of foreboding. Her name, uh, uh is, is is what it is in Elvish. It means swallow. Mm-hmm. Um, or Cirilla in uh, human. Um, and we know that there is a tower called Tor Zeriel. Uh, we also know that there's a tower called Tor Lara. Um, who was her uh, ancestor? Oh, that's right. Lara Doran. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there's there's hints at more, and I, I won't get into this too much, because spoilers, but, you know, that that scene has Bonhart testing her, has her wish coming true, um, and is also destiny taking its own course. And can destiny be avoided is one of the central themes of this story, of can is destiny required can destiny be uh be avoided and if you're told you are destined what does that do to your psyche mm-hmm. uh, that scene basically encapsulates 
the, the, the working elements. You have Siri with her own wants. You have the villains who want her for, for, for their own ones. And then you have this ethereal, unknowable destiny, whatever that may be, um, guiding the hand. You know, which, which is the ultimate answer? Uh, that's the way I view that scene. Is it, it, It's read on multiple levels, depending on what character you're focusing on. Um, also, it just is very reminiscent of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, anything else? I believe we're all good. Alrighty, thank you for joining me again. Mm-hmm. We'll see just how dark this thing can get. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for joining, and see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.